I've come to see the national security and the online culture war as all one system, essentially. But I didn't see it that way at the time. I was totally baffled by Gamergate when it happened. This is probably the first instance of this subculture that had been brewing that now is the, the eye of Sauron is like, whoa, wait a second. We can't have people organizing online uh, with opinions we don't like. Yeah, people who are threatening to us directly. You're, you're telling me it's not just about truth and gaming journalism? Wait a second. <laughs> like literally, historians of us a years from now are going to be studying Gamergate like we studied. For, Fort Sumter, um, baby. It was the opening shot. Of I, it was, it was you know, it's uh, deeply disheartening, but I, I think it really was very significant. That Gamergate framework had been absorbed into the discourse of an extremist violence in the U.S. that was then used to license surveillance by the security state that was used to license punitive measures against Americans exercising constitutionally protected speech that was used to install government monitors inside of the social media companies. You know, that was what made me recognize its salience in retrospect. Jacob Siegel, you're you're a writer at uh, Tablet and Un Unheard and and others as well. And uh, yeah, w welcome. We're excited to have you. Glad we finally made it happen. I'm glad to be here. Antonio is likely not joining, but sometimes he makes a last minute appearance. <laughs> uh, That's okay. I saw the uh, biology episode. And you guys did fine without him. So yeah. Oh, it's great. It's great. Um, are you a are you a biology fan or? Uh, I am. I'm a biology fan, and um, I thought he was in rare form. That was really good. Yeah. That was um, – I, I, actually, I guess it's the sort of standard biology in a sense, but um, very lucid. I thought the red, gray, blue analysis was um, – at points, he got into some stuff. The red, gray alliance I thought was really interesting. So very good. Yeah. I think Gray Tribe is is one of his better ideas um, and one of his more palatable ideas um, because you don't have to be you know, Balji often gets knocked for being anti-American or that that's what people call him or anti-America. Mm -hmm. But the Gray Tribe has no indication of that. So there are no, but it's going to have to overcome uh, a natural and considerable resistance from the Red Tribe if that uh alliance is going to be actualized i think he, he takes for granted that the cultural and ideological affinities would manifest in a an actual political working relationship and i think that that would take a lot of work yeah i would add also just i, I think gray tribe isn't very inspiring like i i get the distinction from an intellectual standpoint but like who who wants to be gray um you know, red and blue evoke emotion. And, and so I think, uh, I, I think this, this goes back to just, it, there needs to be the translation. If, if you think of Curtis as kind of like purely kind of theory, intellectual and biology is much more practical. And, and I think more maybe optimistic, right? Like you don't have a, a clear pill or black pill or any of that. I think the retail version of, of, Biology's gray tribe is is the thing that people need to find or or create, right? I mean, I, I hear what you're saying, but if the um, if the branding on gray is too appealing and too charismatic, it draws attention in a way uh, 
that I'm not sure makes sense tactically to the power of Gray. Um, there, it seems to me like I assumed, I guess, intuitively that he picked Gray as a way of um, downplaying the sort of uh, the leadership role. I mean, it's a funny thing to say that like the tech billionaires would be the gray men in this scenario, but in a way it's, uh, it also seemed, it seemed to be what he was getting at in part, like the sort of infrastructural facilitators of the um, societal rebuild instead of the charismatic leaders of it. I guess just like play it out. Are there any sports teams that are gray? Uh, are there any flags that are gray? Um, it's funny you mentioned the gray man. It's a great book, but like it, to me, gray is associated. I, f- I feel like some drab office in Washington, DC or like the FBI is gray or like, and, and, and so, and it's less of critique of biology as much as it's a yes. And it's like, how can you take the insight of the idea? and package it in a way, uh, you know, totally non sequitur in some ways, but like Obama, the hope poster, like what is the equivalent for the gray tribe? That is the, the level of retail that you need for that. I think to be able to drive it as an actual movement. And that's one thing I think about, um, EAC, you know, effective accelerationism, a little too jargony and, uh, in some ways a little cringe. But I think that the spirit is right, and it and it there is a set of propaganda is probably not the right word, but the fact that there's this whole group of Twitter accounts that are generating kind of with mid-journey future inspired posts and imagery, right? Like whole Mars catalog, and and there's this other one I think smoking something that Elon follows, and you know you have all these these kind of like inspirational images of of humans colonizing the stars. That, that I think is, is getting towards something that people can be inspired by versus I think the, the gray tribe frame feels very tactical in terms of like, this is how you would actually go about doing it. But I don't think it is going to draw people in. And maybe the counter is if you're just effective, people don't care and they will attribute gray as, as a positive thing because it's getting results. I think it's just making it harder if it doesn't have that kind of retail, easy pitch, inspirational component. Has been Andreessen's been using EAC lately, right? He's picked up on this too. And Gary Tan, yeah, yeah. It's I mean I've followed um, the accelerationist discourse for a long time, so it's it's a strange a strange journey that it's taken. Yeah, I mean even that accelerationist doesn't feel like the right that that feels like it's like. Uh... Lenin almost in some ways, let's like, like, like heighten the contradictions. Let's, let's, you yeah. know, well, it started off as a left-wing critique of that, right? you know, as the, the term was coined by this British academic critiquing Nick Land, critiquing the, what he saw even at the time, Benjamin was not boys, something like that anyway. And, the, you know, it's just passed through all of these different, mimetic stages and like now for Andreessen to be using it is just a very strange evolution but the imagery certainly is like powerful and palatable and like building big things and making things work and um, you know uh, sort of the 
tech with grandeur to it. I mean, I, I'm personally more uh, concerned with like tech at a human scale, whatever that means. But tech with grandeur has real, I think, emotional appeal and resonance for people. Yeah, I mean, look, I think it's interesting that, and as we're Klein, Derek Thompson, the, the idea of abundance, I think that is actually a very powerful, simple thing that the average person can understand, right? You say the word abundance, it, it conjures up Thanksgiving, overflowing food, right? Like it's just like, oh, there's more than enough for everyone. It is is a positive sum, um, something enabled by technology, right? If you actually look at the the track record of technology over the last 200 years, it has enabled abundance, whether that's food or um, obviously the internet, but, you know, energy abundance, right? It's actually a reframe of climate change, right? It's like degrowth is actually what climate change is, is rooted in. Uh, abundance is we are going to, you know, engineer our way out of this. Um, we are going to have more energy, 10, 100x amount of energy that we have today. We can desalinate the world. We can suck the carbon out of the air. And I think that is actually a powerful message from a retail standpoint, and even in California. Connect that to jobs with good wages and security, and you've got everything you need. You know, it's, it's, it, if, if the abundance is only consumer abundance, there's a problem. If the abundance is a integrated society, you know, not integrated in the fullest sense of the word, I mean, um, and, and that, you know, that sort of like mid-century, um, you, you, are part of an industrial economy that also provides you with the material conditions to raise a family and have some expectation of security. That, that to me is a, like really bringing it all together, politically salient, um, working, working message for all this. I think what's important about it is it appeals to both sides. It's, it's a bit of a Rorschach test is you say abundance to a uh, uh, progressive, right? If, I mean, if Ezra Klein is, is talking about this, it's obviously important. It's they're thinking high speed rail in California and, and Yimby's like win and, and we're building smart housing policy. And you say abundance to kind of a, a right winger or, you know, free market capitalist, we're able to go build all the stuff that we want to build. And, and so in, in, in some ways it's the sclerotic, you know, administrative state, which I think maybe is a good jumping off point for our discussion today is being beat by the the smart progressives, the abundance oriented progressives that say, hey, we should be able to build a, a mile of subway at the same cost as Spain. And, and Spain has a plenty of safety net. Like, what are we doing in New York that's making this so expensive? And then on the other side, it's like, we, we should be able to, to go build all the, you know, startups and companies and uh, the SpaceX's and Andorals of the world should should be able to exist as well. And so I, I think that that also, it sells to the progressive that's really educated. It sells to the the free market capitalist, but it also sells to the, the immigrant in California who is here now and wants abundance for their family, right? And it's like, I want good education. I want housing. I want a, a, a quality job and I want to work hard. That, that abundance mindset, I think is a, really powerful frame because it, who, who's going to argue against abundance outside of some degrowther who has no constituency? 
I'm I'm pro abundance. I'm definitely not uh, anti abundance, and I agree that that's uh, an appealing message to a broad constituency. Um, but you know, given that there is a fairly recent, well documented record in America of periods of putative abundance, where you know GDP is increasing, it appears that there's economic growth occurring, but for reasons having to do with the combination of the structure of the political economy and also government regulation, the share of that abundance going to working Americans starting in the 1990s dramatically decreases. And the share going to, um, you know, to, to shareholder profits dramatically increases to make that pitch appealing politically to not just uh, sort of policy wonks, but to working Americans requires that the abundance is structured in such a way that it's built around a, first of all, conception of the national interest, which we've only just begun to recover as a acceptable political framework in the last five years, right? The sort of Trumpian nationalism renormalized, and to your point about there being a broad consensus around abundance, progressives, liberals, whomever you want to take as your sort of uh, typical person there, Ezra Klein, Iglesias, whomever, can now talk about a a national interest can now talk about, um, you know, whether it's in terms of some kind of industrial policy or, or whatever it is. There's a an ability to to talk about this explicitly now without being, um, you know, without a pall of sort of racism or xenophobia hanging over you. I think it was Klein who famously did the interview with Bernie Sanders in 2016 for Vox, where uh, where he's like, "What do you?" Open borders is good, right? We should all want um, open borders forever. And Bernie Sanders, and this is still the Bernie Sanders of 2016, who's a sort of, at this point, still a halfway unreconstructed left-wing populist of sorts, is saying, no, no, open borders is a Koch brothers conspiracy, right? Now, look how far we've come since then. Bernie is now... um, completely subsumed into the democratic establishment. He's just functioning as a kind of, excuse me, a shill for the Biden administration at this point. Um, But on the other hand, I think that, you you know, a Vox writer could sort of talk, make a uh, national interest case for abundance at this point. So I am definitely in favor of a... uh, politics of of growth, which I think is not only good in terms of generating wealth um, and, and in a very basic sense, good for people. It's also, you know, degrowth is never going to be an American value. It's never going to take root here in a real way. So it's always going to be a sort of just ideological fetish of sorts. You never, this country is not built on degrowth, obviously, and, and it's not in the national character. Um, but, but, but you need a growth that 
benefits American workers. That, that's how I see it. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. If you don't already subscribe to Turpentine's industry-leading newsletters, like our new daily AI newsletter, Emergent Behavior, or Media Empires, you should. But that's not what I'm here to tell you about. The platform we use to power these newsletters is called Beehive, and it's excellent. First of all, it was started by the same early team who helped build Morning Brew into a $75 million newsletter business. And they built Beehive to offer that same powerful functionality to anyone sending emails. From essayists to business owners, the platform is beautiful, their text editor is intuitive, and they help you scale your audience with custom growth features. Beehive has powerful tools to help you monetize your content. You can easily launch paid subscriptions or pursue an advertising model. The Beehive platform will even connect you to premium brands to sponsor your newsletter. Not only do we use them, but thousands of the top newsletters in the world also use them, like Milk Road, Blockworks, The Lindy Newsletter, and so many more. Beehive's founder hooked up Moment of Zen listeners with a sweet deal. Get 20% off for three months with code MOZ. Visit beehive.com, that's B-E-E-H-I-I-V.com to get started. I think that's a good point. Um, so, so, so two things. One, to go back to the, the Bernie 2016 and, and now where Bernie is. Um, one, one thing, I, I've been listening to the Elon Musk biography on my way to work. Uh, and um, I just finished the, the chapter uh, talking about the Obama administration's approach to private space. And I actually didn't know this story. And I, and I think it's really indicative of, of how much we've changed in terms of maybe the polarization. And, and I think there are a bunch of examples of this with Obama, right? Like if you kind of think about the average Trump voter thinking Obama is this kind of, you know, caricature of, of a progressive when in reality, like comparing kind of where Obama was relative to the Biden administration, I wouldn't really say Biden is driving the ship there right now, but um, he got a lot of heat for, for basically following a deputy staffer at NASA who, who wasn't part of the military industrial complex, kind of the revolving door from like Boeing and these, these launch companies that were all on cost plus contracts to allow SpaceX um, to, to have a contract for uh, shuttling. And this is in you know, 2010 when SpaceX had only done one or two flights. And, you know, it sounded preposterous that this, this startup that had blown up multiple rockets was going to be moving astronauts to the International Space Station. Fast forward a decade, 80% of global payloads uh, are, are SpaceX, like uh, compared to everybody else in the world. So it's, it's like a phenomenal success. And Obama actually went down and did a uh, photo op with Elon Musk in front of a SpaceX rocket. And so to imagine today a Democratic politician showing up in front of uh, anything that, that Elon would be working on, whether that's obviously the, the leading electric car manufacturer in the world or, or, or SpaceX is just so outside the, the kind of norms. And so I, I found that, that, uh, that Bernie anecdote reminded me of this. And I, I just, I've been thinking about this quite a bit. It's like Obama should get a lot of credit for actually where we are today with space. That was a good policy, regardless of what you think of him as from a political standpoint. But we, we just now it's just everything gets turned into, oh, it was Obama. So if I'm a right winger, I think that's bad. Or, you know, it, something that Trump did automatic because Trump is an abhorrent, abhorrent human. I have no ability to reason. You mentioned the kind of like how did the American worker benefit? I, I, the, the one way I would uh, kind of disagree a little bit on that is that famous cost chart. Right. So you have the, the electronics. Uh, obviously, an iPhone is a great example. How many consumer electronics that existed prior to a, a 
smartphone uh, did it individually. You know, you'd have a camera, you'd have, you know, a flashlight, you'd have a calculator, all, all these different things that now you don't buy. It's kind of this consumer surplus that comes with a supercomputer in your pocket that's reasonably affordable for, for most Americans, just given the penetration. Um, compare that to housing, education, healthcare, right? So the, the thing I would push on is, I think I agree with you in that the average American has had an increase in cost on a bunch of different categories. But a part of that is that those categories have been kind of protected by the maybe traditional kind of like government bureaucracy, whether that's that's kind of in the unions or 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 just kind of like very protective set of laws. And I think the SpaceX example to me is is amazing in that the you know, rockets, we, we went to the moon, you know, 1969 and, and basically haven't been back in 50 years. And it's taken a kind of breakthrough from a private company to actually reinvigorate U.S. space travel in a way that they are actually making money in the free market, right? Like SpaceX is actually a profitable, you know, on a unit economic standpoint for, for launches, they're not getting subsidies. Compare that to the, you know, United Launch Alliance or whatever that barely can put things up into space. And to me, that military industrial complex is is similar to the kind of housing complex, the uh, you know healthcare complex, and, and and things like that. Well, hold on, because th that military industrial complex also launched a lot of these companies, or, or was crucial in facilitating the launch of a lot of these companies that are now producing these breakthroughs in the supercomputer in your pocket. So, I I don't think they can be so. There's not a, a strict dichotomy between free market entrepreneurialism and the military industrial complex. And we could go through the government alliances and carve outs for virtually every single one of from, you know, Google and people always harp on <clears throat> InQtel, but the Google government relationship is much more extensive than just that. And, and there are carve outs for Apple and, and, for all these companies. So I, I think that the balance though, that we're trying to strike is between a government approach that promotes entrepreneurialism and innovation. Um, but to my mind that combines that with some regulatory bureaucracy on the other side of innovation to protect, uh, American workers. And you can, you, it, I, I was about to put it in a somewhat disingenuous way. I was going to say you could say that would be a, a break on you know growth, but it, it's not that you could say it would be a break on growth. But I, that's fine in my opinion because an economy exists to serve a nation, not the other way around. In my way of of seeing the world, so you, or, or a sovereign political entity, if you prefer that, a, a state, if you will. Um, so the purpose of the government is not to decrease all friction and restrictions such that the economic engine can achieve its apotheosis free from any political obligations or social obligations, nor is the nor is, you know, the government's role to place onerous political and social obligations on uh, free enterprise. The period that you're talking about when we went to the moon in 1969 is the, the peak of the period that 
combined these two things um, most effectively. You know, the, the post-war is a lot of criticism and sort of uh, backlash against like the post-war order these days, as it were, you know, and some of it is fine. It's a sort of healthy revisionism occasioned by the manifest failures of that order in recent years. But these were, in particular, the first three decades after the end of the Second World War were periods of phenomenal growth, the explosion of mass affluence. And that occurred in a environment, especially in the U.S., that maximally combined uh, pro-innovation policies. Some of this through getting out of the way of the free market, some of this through finding ways to sort of stimulate and, and uh, sponsor. I mean, the, the internet, of course, famously comes out of um, ARPANET, right? And, and the National Science Foundation. And, and um, so there's a combination of this, but it's balances that innovation and entrepreneurialism with a you know, somewhat protectionist framework that allows uh, workers inside the United States to benefit from this mass affluence such that they can then participate in uh, the society where this affluence is occurring and that creates a stable social foundation for the country. So I, I think that's a fair point. And I, I don't want to come across as kind of like government could do no good. I, I think if anything, um, the massive amount of military industrial, you know, Cold War spending in that 30 year period resulted in, in a phenomenal amount of kind of uh, consumer surplus, technological surplus, entrepreneurial surplus, however you want to kind of categorize it, whether it's the most efficient spending or not, I, I, that actually is less interesting to me. But I think the analogy I would say is it's it's almost like post-World War II, you have this fertile, uh, massive amount of you know land, field, whatever you want to call it, and, and you can go plant a forest. And so the forest can just do phenomenally well because there's there's no existing canopy and 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 the government can actually come in and, and fund things and, and and set up the structures. And and you you end up growing this massively successful, you know, tall, uh, old growth forest. But if you if you actually don't have forest fires every once in a while, you don't have natural ways of, of, of kind of tearing down maybe some of these existing structures. So if you do what California does, where you you uh, basically don't allow any of these things to be logged or whatever, then you get uh, these just kind of like, A, you don't have any new growth, and then B, you get even worse forest fires. And so I think that there's there has to be some natural, and I think the SpaceX uh, with the Obama administration is a good example of that, where even just a small tweak, it has now allowed, uh, I think, a, a, a massive new industry to, to grow and, and a lot of innovation to happen. NASA is still very fundamentally involved, right? Like a lot of the money that actually came to help SpaceX, that billion dollar plus contract, was government funding. So so I, I, I think, to your point, I think that there is a balance, but the the version of the world where the government is going to do everything is, I don't think, right. And then the version of the world where there is no involvement uh, of the government, you know, free market, uh, Galt's Gulch type situation, that, that obviously doesn't work. And so I think it, it's fighting over what the right balance of that is. And, and to your point is like, how does the average American worker benefit? And I think what's challenging is in the 30 years post-World War II, 
high school education was sufficient to actually have a pretty good job, right? You get a factory job in, in the Midwest, work at an auto company, have a really good pension, kind of be part of a thriving civic society in a whole bunch of towns, you know, in a place like Ohio. And in a world where globalization has occurred, people have moved stuff overseas, to your point, because of, you know, maximizing shareholder value. Um, the people who benefit in the abundance that has been created in the world of bits, not atoms, uh, have to be more educated, white collar. And so I think that that disparity, and, and this is something we've talked about on the podcast before, and, and it's an issue that I, I don't have a good answer for, but is how do you deal with an 18-year-old who's probably not well-suited for college, an 18-year-old male? What should they be doing in our society today? And if, if we don't have an answer to that, to your point about the social fabric, that is going to break down. Like and, and, We had an answer to that. Okay, so that would be interesting because I would say, and AGM usually would, would chirp in here, and maybe you will, is in a country like Israel, they send everyone into the military. I mean, Israel, uh, unfortunately, in my opinion, is um, over-leveraging its tech sector. It's, it's a difficult bind for Israel because the tech in Israel is obviously strategically vital for Israel, the ability to leverage high tech. So it's, it's difficult. But Israel also has some private sector middle class left, right? Um, and, uh, you know, I, I basically agree with most of what you said there, but until it gets to the part about um, what do we do with people who can't compete in a, a, you know, a high stakes information economy and that the loss of the jobs that used to employ the people who couldn't work um, as coders uh, was a deliberate series of policy decisions. And, you know, you can go back and read the uh, political and economic officials who were leading those decisions at the time, they're very explicit about the fact that this is going to be difficult, but it'll be, we'll be trading up and achieving a new equilibrium. We'll, we'll get rid of these factory jobs, but, um, in the future, you know, people will be retrained so that they can participate meaningfully in the information economy. And I don't think that those people saying those things at the time did so cynically necessarily. I think they, they really believed that, but it was a enormous gamble to make. You know, it led to a decline in real wages for something like 60 million people in the country. So it had enormous consequences and it didn't, it didn't work out that way. And so not only did people who had been employed, you know, this sort of the factory job becomes like the archetypal job we talk about being outsourced. But of course, there are all these middle management jobs that also leave when a, a large firm gets outsourced or it gets automated for that matter. You know, uh, Jaron Lanier, you know, has the famous example of like when you replace Kodak with Instagram, you know, it's there are all these sort of middle, you know, the accountants, the lawyers, like, all of a sudden you go from a firm that was employing, you know, maybe 40,000 people to one that employs a thousand. What do you do about that? You know, one of the things you do is that to come back to my original point is you structure your economy in such a way so that it serves the, the 
people in the country whose uh, political sovereignty goes toward protecting that economic structure. So you don't make a decision to um, simply, you know, outsource all these jobs or to, to try and um, place everything in sort of international arbitrage. You, you, you do have a degree of uh, regulation, restriction, that it, you know, countervailing power from labor unions. These are, of course, there's endemic corruption and of course they can be abused and they can produce um, effects that not only retard economic growth, but end up being bad even for uh, labor. It's, all of this is true, but on balance, it's preferable to simply discarding tens of millions of people and and then saying, well, we have no more jobs for you in this economy. Well, those jobs still exist. It's just somebody else is doing them somewhere else. The structure of the American economy um, no longer supports that. You know, I, I think some of what the Biden administration has done is a step, a half step in the right direction, though I don't put that much stock in it, frankly. I think there's a lot of sort of um, the gestures don't actually add up to, to all that much, in my opinion. Um, but, you know, look, Elon employs a lot of people, right? So um, that's, it's good. Uh, the, the, to come back just for a moment to like the surprising thing about the Elon Obama White House relationship, you know, in the lens through which I'm looking at that is less about Democrats and Republicans and more just based on my own interest in this particular history is more about the narrative about tech and political power and tech and particularly progressive political power in America. And the period when that alliance was formed that you're describing is a period when actually, you know, Obama had famously run the Facebook campaign, right? The meetings between the Obama State Department and the uh, Google, they set a new record for how often they were meeting. It was, I think, an average of twice a week, the uh, back and forth of personnel between the Obama White House uh, and Obama State Department and Google set a new record. So... This was the last period when political progressives in the U.S. and uh, the sort of center-left Democratic establishment in the U.S. was all in on tech still because it believed um, it believed that there was a sort of inherent alliance built in. I, I think the way they saw it was that tech being a disruptive, progressive force in the world was uh, drawing, you know, uh, people who may be libertarian leaning, but um, who tended to be at least progress oriented and, and to favor, you know, technocratic solutions. And that matched perfectly with the Obama White House approach to politics in a lot of ways. So, there, there, this was the last moment when that alliance was really sort of in full bloom. And then, um, of course, you know, 
2015, 2016, the rise of populist movements allegedly um, occurring through manipulations of social media, um, a mischaracterization in my opinion, but the that was the assessment of many uh, people in the sort of center left establishment broke that alliance, not only because it showed that the that the tech platforms were not inherently left-wing, but also because the center-left progressive political leaders like Obama, like Clinton, viewed that as a direct betrayal of their own uh, payments into the growth of big tech, a direct betrayal of the years they had spent cultivating these alliances. You know, Clinton, Hillary Clinton, when she was uh, at state, um, you know, was speaking, you know, effusive in her praise for the revolutionary power of social media to democratize the world. You know, her, one of her top aides famously compares Twitter to Che Guevara, thinking that this is a positive thing to say about Twitter. He means it as a compliment that this is like the Che Guevara of tech. Um, and so when it turns out that, you know, actually in a democracy, other kinds of people, bad people, people with um, bad ideas, um, black hearts can also use that tech. They saw that really, I think, is a, a profound betrayal. Wow, a lot, lot to unpack there. And, and I think very well said. Um, there were a couple of things that I wanted to make sure we, we touched on. So one, you brought up the, the Kodak example, which I think is actually really important to just kind of consider because it ties into actually the the half measure you mentioned about Biden. Um, so Rochester, New York, if you've ever been to Rochester or Syracuse. I've spent a lot of time in Rochester. Yeah, yeah. So, so not a not a place most people would want to go move on their own, but thriving economic engine in an era when Eastman Kodak was a, you know, kind of Dow Jones industrial, like core part of the American economy, a lot of innovation. Um, but to your point, not only do you have all these kind of uh, people within the company, but but the auxiliary, right? So you know, in a world where Kodak is is actually manufacturing things in Rochester, you have this all the cottage industry of all these little you know uh, small businesses that are feeding into the the kind of big company. All of the you know, as you mentioned, the lawyers, the accountants, but just the economic engine for that entire area is is there to serve, right? A restaurant can only exist in a world where you have. Uh, Kodak executives going to, to to spend the the large amount of money. I mean, if you if you Google Kodak now, the the headquarters in Rochester, New York, the Kodak Tower, beautiful building. Like, <laughs> and if you've been to Rochester recently, like there, there's nothing there. But what's interesting is there was a New York Times article talking about how uh, Chuck Schumer, as part of the Chips Act, is is very focused. Um, obviously, centered from New York, funneling money to this this once great region from a technological standpoint that got beat by the internet. Um, and, and, and so I think it, it, the, the attempt of like, how, how can we actually kind of reinvigorate these, these once great areas? I, I don't think it's actually the right set of policies because I don't, I don't think outside of if the money dries up from the federal government, I, I don't think you're going to have that much of a competitive uh, 
it's not it's not like you're going to be building that same level of ecosystem in Rochester, New York again if if they put a an Intel plant there as a result of uh, you know some tax break, right? As soon as as soon as that 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 is done, that, that they're going to limit the amount of investment that's there, and then you know move it to a lower cost state, right? And New York, I'm sure, has really high uh, kind of fixed costs for an average employee, and people would rather put it in Texas, like like Elon is doing. I, I think that the um, the the tech point that you made in terms of tech and, and democratic alliance, right? So you have Howard Dean and then Obama, where they were the tech forward candidates. What, what's interesting to me is that Trump, um, to my knowledge, I mean, it seems like now with the Twitter files, it's, it probably was actively um, adversarial with Twitter. But the fact that he was able to just use the tool himself, right? It's not even like he had staffers tweeting from his account. It's just a guy with his with his phone using the tool and the power of the tool um, is, is kind of interesting in the sense that I don't even think that the, uh, you know, Twitter, it was actually, I think, more influential for, for Trump in the sense that his tweets created the media cycle. But but the company that got blamed for it was Facebook, because there was this kind of bogus Cambridge Analytica story that was an easy thing. And then obviously, Zuck has been hated by the left for the last five years until a new enemy has shown up, uh, Rocket Man. And so now that Rocket Man is, is even better than Zuck, you now have an enemy of my enemy is my friend and you have the journalists coming to threads and praising how great the platform that they had spent the last five years talking about how Meta was, was the reason we were stuck with Trump. It's just, it, I find it very ironic in, in, in a lot of ways. No, it's extraordinary. I mean, it's, um consistency is uh, not to be found in any of this. I mean, a bare like a thread of intellectual integrity is not to be found in most of this. Um, the, the decision, I shouldn't say the, the decision, the um, pressure campaign against Facebook, which Cambridge Analytica had a lot to do with that. And, you know, anybody who hasn't, uh, reviewed what the British courts found when this was um, tried in the British courts and who still believes that Cambridge Analytica could deliver on this, um, you know, very lofty set of promises to do precise psychometric analysis should just review what came out in the trial, which was essentially that these were marketing claims and that, you know, this sort of nightmarish like Philip K. Dick dystopian version of Cambridge Analytica was just PR material. It never existed. So that certainly had something to do with it. I think also, though, that um, there was a, a very fundamental, very profound shift in the thinking of the political establishment, which came largely from the defense establishment. And this occurs Really, the pivotal event is the sort of popularization of the idea of hybrid warfare that begins in 2014. Three events take place in 2014. So I, I wrote this uh, essay about disinformation, information war for Tablet Magazine called A Guide to Understanding the Hoax of the Century, 13 Ways of Looking at Disinformation. And I have a section in that on hybrid warfare, and I, I talk about these three events that took place in 2014, and there's a fourth that I'll add now. So the three I talk about there are Russia's invasion of Crimea, the Euromaidan protests in Ukraine, and ISIS, um, both taking Mosul, capturing the northern Iraqi city of Mosul, declaring its caliphate there, and doing so through 
a very uh, globally, uh, you know, this lurid global social media campaign that really captured a lot of attention and, and seemed to herald something new in warfare. And even more so, actually, in the case of Russia's uh, response to Euromaidan and then invasion of Crimea, which relied on these influence operations conducted via not only social media, but also, um, you know, internet channels. Um, and so that those three events popularized the idea of hybrid warfare in the defense establishment, which had actually been kicking around since the Israel-Lebanon war as this rather vague, amorphous term to refer to uh, modern warfare that combines conventional and unconventional tactics. And um, then in 2014, it it really added cyber as this, the main component. So now hybrid warfare was referring to the way in which effectively um, Russia, ISIS had used the internet, had used information operations over social media to um, the standard military doctrinal term would be prep the battlefield. So like in conventional warfare, before you send the infantry in, right, you hit the enemy with artillery first. And that's called prepping the battlefield. You're essentially weakening their defenses before the in- infantry goes in so that the infantry can maneuver more effectively and can uh, mass what's known as fire superiority. So these social media campaigns were the equivalent of prepping the battlefield because they were thought to demoralize the enemy such that when the, um, ah, Antonio, how are you? Right in time. Um, hey, they, uh, talking about hybrid warfare. So, so they were thought to, to demoralize the enemy so that then when the Russian irregular soldiers, the men in black uniforms or Russian regular soldiers arrived, there would be less resistance. So those, and, and the same with ISIS that, you know, and there's obviously some truth to this. If you tweet enough beheading and brutality images, it might scare some of your enemies. Now, it also might rile them up to defend their towns. So much of the sort of theory of hybrid warfare was always, frankly, uh, overinflated and inconclusive, but that was the idea. The fourth thing, which I don't mention in the piece, but in some sense was more influential on the domestic political audience in the U.S., was Gamergate. And Gamergate convinced the political uh, and media class, really the media class, actually more than the political class, media class and the nonprofit class. So the the narrative forming and uh, class that influences the political uh, discourse and decision making, it convinced them that there was a dangerous counterinsurgency that had found a permissive environment on sites like Reddit and on social media. And they were using that permissive environment to spread dangerous forms of domestic extremism. And I mean, that sounds like a, an absurd uh, caricature-ish way to describe what started off as like a jilted uh, video game guy, a lover writing a, a rather unhinged, weird letter to his ex-girlfriend, which is the actual origins of Gamergate. But that's really how it was seen in sort of political counterinsurgency terms. So those four events come together and they popularize this this conceptual framework of hybrid warfare 
um, as a form of conflict that observes no boundaries between online and in real life that passes back and forth through this porous, uh, these porous screens of ours. Um, and that represents a threat both to um, democracy itself, uh, to civilization, as ISIS showed, to the NATO alliance, as Russia showed, and to the stature and safety of um, political elites act and uh, political and social elites acting as the defenders of vulnerable minorities, which is what Gamergate showed. That framework gets absorbed from the defense establishment into the political establishment and really informs this response, which coalesces immediately after uh, Hillary Clinton loses the election. So the pressure campaign on Facebook begins instantaneously when victory is declared for Trump. And, and, and it begins instantaneously in a way that tells you they had actually been working on it for months because all the pieces were in place. So just to name one example, immediately after the election, an organization no one had ever heard of before called the International Fact-Checking Network uh, gets a story planted in Politico saying, hey, there's a dangerous tide of fake news and misinformation, but never fear, Mr. Zuckerberg, we can help you. Right. We are here. The International Fact Checking Network and the whole thing has the aura of like a real legitimate thing. Like there's really a cadre of fact checkers out there. But if there's no such thing, it's totally astroturfed. You know, it's a political operation, essentially. And um, it's in place. And, uh, and Zuckerberg, after initially resisting, wilts in the face of this pressure campaign, and the IFCN ends up installing its cadre of fact-checkers inside Facebook. So that's how that story ends. And, and the prep for that occurs through the popularization of hybrid warfare. So I, I love that it's it's the Facebook Supreme Court, right? It's like the like you know these like all these uh, Illuminati P, uh, PMC like more credentials than you could ever imagine. You never heard of these people, and they're officially the ones that make the decisions for for Zuck, despite his super voting shares. Um, and this is why I think Elon drives them so crazy. Is now the the kind of media class social network of choice, uh, <laughs> or at least used to be, is run by a king and <laughs> a king who does not share their um, you know respect for for the establishment in in that regard. I I think Jacob. We have a few, uh, let's say, chat group friends who actually point out Gamergate as this pivotal event. And I know you kind of gave a little bit of a summary, but I don't think most people and, and frankly, I, I have a hard time like going like, wait, how, how did this weird video game subculture thing actually become the pivotal moment in, in changing the the perception of the media class? And so is there any more you can expand on that? Because it just seems so strange because you imagine that the average journalist would look at someone who plays video games as, as, you know, probably someone they don't like or they would make fun of them or, you know, whatever. But the fact that this thing actually had an in impact, like th there are very smart people that I, you know, talk to on a regular basis that are like Gamergate was the start of all of this. My parents didn't even let me have a Nintendo as a kid. So I'm not uh, I'm not an authority on um, gamer culture, but my it's interesting when I took a job in the army, I got back, I was, um, 
in Afghanistan in 2012, uh, covering national security at the Daily Beast in 2013. And then very quickly, I combined my job covering national security stuff and veterans affairs issues with coverage of um, digital ideologies, as I called it at the time, sort of online culture war stuff. And so it's come full circle because I've I've come to see the national security and the online culture war as all one system, essentially. But I didn't see it that way at the time. I was totally baffled by Gamergate when it happened, and it was only years later I was able to piece it together. But as best I can understand, here's what happened. There was a, a, a woman who designed a video game. I'm forgetting her name now, but she designed a sort of um, boutique video game, let's say, not to appeal to a popular audience, but part of this sort of indie video game crowd that was becoming popular at the time through Kickstarter. And um, these were video games that uh, sort of gamer or video game critics liked. I, I'm sort of repeating things I've read. I don't, I don't, consider myself authority on any of this. But so she created those kinds of games. And then she was like, she had an ex-boyfriend who accused her of like sleeping with somebody or another, some kind of like combination of cuckoldry and various forms of sexual shame and lashing out. But he ends up writing this very long letter attacking her, which also, um, you know, frankly, I don't, I'm realizing as I try to recount this, like I'm lost in the lore. The important thing to understand is what it ends up triggering um, is this broader conflict between self-defined gamers um, who, as I understand it, see themselves as defending not this particular guy and his uh, psychodrama with his ex-girlfriend, but defending video game culture writ large as not being as it is accused of being by the sort of media establishment, uh, defending it on the grounds that it's a normal pastime and not some kind of bastion of extremism and misogyny and racism. And they are then under attack from the sort of video game critics narrowly, but more broadly liberal media establishment that has taken the side of this video game designer woman who is the subject of this scorned email and then on her behalf essentially launches this larger crusade against gamer culture as being, you know, one of these hotbeds of systemic white supremacy and um, misogyny and all of the sort of various, like all, all the sins on the list of 21st century Calvinism, you know, the things that people can't be forgiven for. And, um, and so the, in this battle, the gamers acting as sort of effective networked insurgents, to borrow a term from John Robb, they organize campaigns targeting advertisers. They're actually fairly effective at organizing a kind of networked insurgency. And they do this, they're, you know, doing planning online, um, and I, I ended, I wrote some stuff at the time about the early sort of nascent alt-right that didn't mention gamers at all, but put me on their radar because uh, 
I don't know, I was like criticizing 4chan and they didn't like that. So I wasn't, I don't have any deep sympathies for these people on a personal or a political level for that matter. But at what you could see in retrospect was that the framing of this um, as, you know, the evil racist gamers versus the enlightened progressive defenders of women was one of these bizarre pseudo events that seems to pl take place with increasing regularity in American life. What it triggered was a series of sort of consolidations on the part of the PMC uh, media narrative forming class to prevent um, such insurgencies, you know, from weakening them again in the future by effectively targeting them. So there's a, an attempt to purge such activity from sites like Reddit, an attempt to surveil and censor it out of existence on sites like Twitter and Facebook, and a sort of um, like battening down the hatches and doubling down on the position of infallible moral authority from the media class that had found itself in this embattled posture and responded in a, in a way that was a, you know, bombastic, but also um, sort of, uh, you know, like, like any classic sort of aristocratic class, like seeing the, the peasants forming, um, you know, they, they, built moats and they um, boiled the oil to get it ready and all that stuff. But nothing, nothing in that at the time seemed consequential to me. I should say, I don't want to, don't want to pretend like I saw this as a politically significant event when it happened. It's only years later when I saw the ways in which that Gamergate framework had been absorbed into the, discourse of an extremist violence in the US that was then used to license surveillance by the security state that was used to license punitive measures against Americans exercising constitutionally protected speech that was used to install government monitors inside of the social media companies. You know, that was what made me recognize its salience in retrospect. Sorry, that's a long-winded explanation. No, no, no. Well, well said. And, and I think, like, just a couple observations. If you've ever played uh, online an FPS game, right? I, I'm young enough that I, I did do that a little bit where there was online. It's a cesspool of, like, the worst things you could possibly say because you've taken a bunch of teenage boys who have uh, repressed whatever, and they get to do it now anonymously with violence. So, obviously, if you've ever been in a locker room, locker room talk, it's even more... Uh, exacerbated in, in video games. And so the fact that that exists, sure, but to the point of, you know, 4chan, Reddit, this is probably the first instance of this subculture that had been brewing that now is the, the eye of Sauron is like, whoa, wait a second, we can't have people organizing online uh, with opinions we don't like. If people who are threatening to us directly. Yes. You know. You're telling me it's not just about truth and gaming journalism? Wait a second. Sorry, I'm joking. <laughs> I, I do like how we've turned Gamergate into literally like the Cassis belly of like the entire the entire fragmentation of the Western political sphere. <laughs> like literally historians of thousand years from now are gonna be studying Gamergate like we studied For, Fort Sumter, um, baby. It was the opening shot of yeah, the it was, it was You know, it's uh, deeply disheartening, but I 
I think it really was very significant. I, I think that it um, it really implanted this idea uh, in people and 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 established some of the um, institutional connections between the extremist monitoring nonprofits and the media that then um, were really influential in 2016, 2017. Uh, so sorry for joining late. There's a bit of drama at home. And as you can tell, the sound isn't great, Jacob, but glad to finally meet you, I think, face to face. I'm sure we've talked before. We also uh, secretly operate for the same Jewish cabal called Tablet Magazine. So true or false, Jacob, you mentioned your service in Afghanistan. You were an army ranger. Is that is that right? I am ranger qualified, which means that I graduated from ranger school, but I did not serve in the ranger battalion. So that's a distinction that'll be unbelievably meaningful to like two dozen people listening to this. But uh, but it means that I went through a tough school. I didn't serve in a super elite unit. Still badass. I, I don't have anything close to that. Oh, it, it is badass. And I'm very proud to have a ranger tab, but it's, uh, you know, they're, they're sort of two different worlds. You know, I've lurked on, on army forums. I know the distinction is a big one. Maybe you've already asked this, Eric, but you're in Israel now, right? Are, are you speaking from Israel? Jacob? I am. Yeah. Oh, cool. I, I was there a few weeks ago and I, in fact, wrote a piece for tablet about it that caused a little bit of a stir. I think in Israel, I, I'm not, I'm like, not, I haven't even made out of the yet. And I'm already disliked by certain people, which maybe is probably one of the most qualifying. Yeah, no, I thought, I thought that piece was really good. And, um, I get the sort of left secular perspective, but I don't get the tech perspective. So it was interesting for me to see, um, from those people directly. Cause I get like my relatives saying to me, we'll lose the tech people if this happens but I hadn't heard it from the tech people directly in that way. I was actually there on like a business trip because we did a partnership with an Israeli company. And one of the unnamed people that hosted me was actually our, our business partner. So it, it's slightly awkward to come out <laughs> and, and, and using them as talking points in a piece. Although, although they encouraged me to literally the first, I, just to go to the piece and, and, and be engaged in a little bit of autoerotic self-citation in the, in the piece. Like I literally in the first day, I'm totally jet lagged. And like I get dragged to these protests that are going on in Jerusalem. On Shabbat, of course, as seculars would, of course, do it on Shabbat. And so off I go, uh, not being Shomer Shabbos, obviously, and participate in some of the process. And I was there with the business. And they, they actually encouraged, like, you should, you know, you should go home and write about this. It gets to one of the pieces you wrote, right, which is that, I mean, Israel above almost every other international issues. But in the United States, everything, every foreign issue is seen as an extension of an American domestic political neurosis, right? <laughs> like, literally, the entire world exists as, like, a Plato's cave reflection of like an American presidential election, <laughs> like in the American mind, of course, in reality, of course, it does not. But um, and in one of your pieces, you, you mentioned exactly that. You want to maybe talk, talk about that for for a second? That's exactly right. I mean, foreign policy, U.S. foreign policy really doesn't exist anymore. It's we have a domestic policy that covers the entire world. And there are deep roots to that. You know, so historian Angelo Codvilla traces this all the way back to Wilsonianism. And, and you can see the deep roots of it in a kind of crusading early 20th century progressivism. Um, but I don't think it's necessary to go back that far to understand it necessarily. I really think that 9-11 um, was the, the p- 
pivotal event in terms of this. And while it might seem like that was the last sort of definitive foreign policy, in a lot of ways, actually, it was an extension of a Cold War era framework that wasn't able to be successfully shaken off in time to avoid what ended up being the disaster of the war on terror. And what you got in the war on terror was an inability to conceive, to come back to an earlier point we were talking about, that is conceiving of the national interest and seeing the economy as something that should serve the national interest, should serve the nation and its its citizens. There was an inability to conceive of how to prosecute, uh, you know, the, the action against the terrorists responsible for 9-11 in the states that had backed them in a way that was primarily designed to serve the national interest. And what would that mean? It would mean returning America to a state of peace and prosperity, which is the classical goal of warfare, is not to, uh, we've lost sight of this, but the classical goal of warfare is not to remake the world in our own image. It is to preserve our way of life as distinct from the rest of the world. And very early on, um, the war on terror was conceived of, I wrote a long article, um, actually combining a lot of what we're talking about now for American affairs. I think it's called data driven defeat in Afghanistan, talking about the ways in which, you know, sort of informational management systems had, uh, obscured the inability to pursue a strategic path to victory in Afghanistan. And part of what I trace in that piece is the way that from very early on, the leadership, Rumsfeld, Bush, others had abandoned the idea of prosecuting the war in such a way that it could be won so that we could then get back to peace in America and had instead pursued this idea of a long war that took as the prerequisite of victory the utter and absolute transformation of the Middle East and of Afghanistan into societies remade in our own image. And, and that was, I think, as we could see how by that war ended, um, a, a foolhardy mission, to say the least. In so doing that, um, sort of warfare and foreign policy became like, you know, sort of detached from um reasonably achievable goals. And they became amorphous, inflationary, sort of uh, indefinite states. You know, Obama famously said at one point in reference to Afghanistan, we shouldn't talk about victory because like that's how that's how they used to talk about it. And but we don't storm beaches anymore. And you know, this is postmodern warfare now. And so it's it's misleading and dangerous to talk about victory. And so what that ended up leading to is this sort of state of indefinite warfare, of indeterminate, um, are we at war, aren't we at war? At the same time, the American political system, having taken the entire world now as its stage, um, pursued a series of policies that are starting, I would say, with 9-11 and then accelerating the under the Obama administration, pursued a series of sort of combination of bizarre combination of attempts at like transformative 
changes in the strategic orientation of the U.S., so elevating Iran under Obama um, at the expense of traditional allies like Israel and Saudi Arabia, while at the same time um, seeing other parts of the world as sort of, you know, stages or, or often piggy banks for extractive U.S. policies to enrich a uh, elite ruling class in the U.S., and and that's that's the story we're stuck with now. So our our policies in in Ukraine is the like definitive example of this, right? Ukraine, where the president's son had business relations. I mean, it's funny that um, the natural shock of Joe Biden meddling in Ukraine's judicial system in business that his son was involved with like that, that ought to still be, you ought to think that's bizarre and shocking, but there are so many layers of influence operation and narrative distortion and spin on top of it that I feel like now when you say it, people's first reaction is like, that's a right wing meme, right? But these things actually happened. And at the very least they're weird, right? Yeah. But just to pause you there for a second, I, w- I would say that that's exactly expressing an international affair as as an expression of a domestic political priority. I mean, yes, there's, right. there's obviously Biden has hijinks. That, less, that said, Russian armor invaded Ukraine and encircled Kyiv, and there was the biggest war since World War II happening on European soil, right? And like, in, in some sense, the, the, the point of raising this point about every, the outside world seeming to be like Plato's cave of American political issues is that there is a reality out there that's, that's different than the Biden story. And in some sense... The American attitude towards that outside reality is more a function of that outside reality than, in, than it is the inside reality. Although I know that's not a common opinion. Getting back to the unnamed members of this group chat. Actually, Dan, I think you probably agree with this belief a little bit. You know, America should just pull away from its overseas commitments. It should be inward facing. This is, you know, uh, speaking of the four veins, whatever Walter Russell Mead's analysis of like four veins of American thought. We mentioned Wilsonianism. Another is Jacksonian isolationism, right? That's very nativist, very pro-America. Like, we've got the world at arm's length, who cares, retract everything. The problem with that attitude is that at some point, reality comes and bites you. And the reality is that America does live in an American world order. And the tech companies in San Francisco, the reason why Facebook is Facebook and not Vcontacta, right, which is the Facebook of Russia, is because we live in an American world order and American products have an American market in the way that other regional hegemons do not, right? And in some sense, that world market goes away if we don't actually maintain that order. And if that means potentially supplying the Ukrainians or making sure Taiwan doesn't get involved with the Chinese, that's the price we pay. But that, but that, that's, but I think I could see it being argued either way. I, I think to me, the, the, the counter argument to the Zehan thing is that again, the U S the U S is not actually going to pull away from world leadership. It's just going to get dumber, right. And not going to understand outside issues because it parses the Ukraine issue as like a Biden domestic presidential issue, right. Or something closer to home, Israel, right. But speaking of Biden, Biden placed as a precondition to any deal with the Saudis, resolving the Palestinian issue. I'm putting in air quotes because we've been here about this for 30 years and there is no resolution. As a side note, one thing that struck me about being in Israel doing this massive protest back and forth, nobody even mentioned the Palestinians, right? As, as a domestic issue, the Palestinians almost don't matter anymore. They've been sort of contained. They're irrelevant. They, they, just, they just don't matter. Like 
the Jews are basically fighting amongst themselves. And then the Palestinians, even though things are kind of hot, <laughs> right, in the West Bank, and there's a lot of shootings, a lot of killings and reprisals and a lot of stuff going on, actually. It's not like things are quiet. And yet nobody mentions them. And so, but I would say that's another example in which the American, and, and you know this better than I do, Jacob, the, the American view of Israel is like 20 years behind. The thought that there's going to be a two-state solution, like any of these fantasies from the, from the Obama era are completely fantastical and delusional and just are, are just irrelevant. Unless, of course, you know, the American Secretary of State thinks that it's operative and they stick their fingers in it and suddenly it changes things. But, that, but that's another example where I'll cite where it's like, yeah, Americans can pull away and just not give a shit about the outside world, but then but then they're going to play a role in the Middle East anyhow and get it totally wrong. And that's and that to me is the problem. But these projections of American, it, it, it's a, two things. It's a projection of American domestic political priorities and political agendas. So it's the bizarre attempt to transpose, you know, frameworks that barely make sense in America, but at least have currency in America onto places where they make absolutely no sense at all. It's that uh, combined with what are in many cases like straightforwardly extractive policies that are intended to draw resources out of these places to enrich the American ruling class. In, in the case of Ukraine, where this gets so difficult and so sort of, you know, lost like in a, a almost paradoxical set of uh, relationships is that you have both of these things occurring at the same time, a very real Russian invasion, uh, you know, a, a huge country invading a small sovereign country, the small sovereign country defying the expectations, the totally mistaken expectations of the U.S. intelligence and security establishment, which expected Kiev to fold within a week and was offering Zelensky airlift out of the country and the Ukrainians defy that, very bravely fight back uh, against this defense, or excuse me, against this invasion and, and mount an effective defense. And then you have an American backing of Ukraine and a Ukrainian position on the world stage, very much shaped by that American backing that is obviously responding to the real event that's taking place and yet is using it for ends that can't possibly be said to serve Ukrainians in any direct way necessarily and aren't even about restoring what makes the most sense in terms of a, a kind of restoring the borders that make the most sense in terms of an American-led international order. So I, I don't know exactly how to make sense of all this. I don't know exactly how to draw these lines, but the Ukraine seems to me to be the place where these old, uh, you know, pre-influence operation, pre-information warfare uh, realities meet with uh, sort of American, I don't know what you call it, imperial hubris, uh, you know, and, and also the need for genuine military backing. So it's like all of these things overlaid on top of one another. It's I don't take the strict... Um, isolationist position and nor do I think that the you know that there was no strategic logic to backing Ukraine I think there was a strategic logic to backing Ukraine but the question is to what end what do you is the strategic logic to backing Ukraine to provoke an indefinite war that prompts an even more uh, 
you know, an, a, an even larger reaction from Russia or to try and affect regime change in Russia, which a number of senior U.S. officials have said more or less forthrightly at a number of points. It's not clear to what end any of this is occurring anymore. So I, I hate to hog the mic, Eric, but can I, cause, but can I, can I cause, you know, obviously Israel and Judaism is somewhat of a recurring theme on the show. Hog it, please. So, I mean, the, the other place where American strategic interest is playing a role where it's maybe a little misguided, obviously, is Israel and Iran, right? <laughs> it's another place you can cite that's a little closer to home. Um, I, here's a thought. I, I love, I don't know, uh, have you read um, Dara Horn's work? I'm, I'm sure you have, probably. Like, people love that. Yes. And some of uh, for those who don't know, it's a total plug. I, I actually interviewed her on Pearl Quest, my, my previous podcast a while ago. I think she's probably one of those, the smartest and best writers about American Jewish life today. I think she just gets it in this really cool way. And this book called People Love the Jews. I know it's, it's a slightly uh, spicy title, but with a point. Um, I, I won't try to summarize the entire book, but she does draw some interesting distinctions between sort of Jewish and Christian narratives on reality, right? One of them, to take a near-term example, is um, is um, obviously the, the narrative around Anne Frank, right? Perhaps the, I think she called her the, the world's second most famous Jew, right? After Jesus, obviously, is, is Anne Frank, right? And um, just to summarize very quickly her point, um, and probably the funniest line in the book, um, you know, if anyone hasn't been to Anne Frank House, it's like a super touristy location in Amsterdam. It, they had, a, they had a, a Jewish employee, like, you know, a guy at the door or whatever, and he was religiously observant, and he wore a, keep, a yarmulke, and they asked him to remove it because it might be offensive. And then the best line in the book is, it took remarkably long for, for the Anne Frank Museum to realize that forcing Jews into hiding isn't a good idea. <laughs> and, so just, and, um, and then like also like, you know, on the placards, they have it in various languages. They wouldn't use the Israeli flag on the Hebrew. They would literally use like H-E or something, even though every other language has a European national flag. Again, not to be offensive and stuff. So, you know, the, the idea here being that, uh, you know, it, it, the, the, the secular world, which is really the post-Christian world, loves holding up Jews as an example of something. And it's typically an expression of, frankly, Christian trauma about its own treatment of Jews and has nothing to do with actual Jewish narratives, right? Um, and in some sense, the, the famous Anne Frank line about how, you know, despite it all, I think everyone's a little bit good at heart is kind of a very Christian view of things, right? That's the gospels poking out, saying at the end of the day, people are actually good and the kingdom of God will arrive when in fact it didn't and Anne Frank actually died, right? Um, and like the, the more Jewish narrative would not have that happy ending to it. Okay, anyhow, that, that's a very long intro to the, another point she makes in the book, which is, you know, the Christian and Hebrew Bibles are very different. The Christian Bible obviously is about a happy ending. It's about the happiest ending in the world, right? The return of Jesus and the, the you know, the, 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 the installment of the, of the kingdom of God on earth. And that the, you know, the Jewish Bible ends with Moses dying at the Holy Land, doing a little bit of, uh, you know, trust and probate work about who gets what and then dying. And that's it. The whole saga leads to this and then he just dies. And then there's no resolution. Without getting in for people who haven't read to the end. Without even getting in. Without getting in. All this, all this shit, this whole saga, and he just doesn't even get in. Right. That that is a very Jewish narrative. I wonder this is always one of my secret theory that I've, I've never dared writing about in tablet, although Lana would probably want me to that. Uh, like, I, I think in, in, in particularly the case of the Israeli narrative, America, Americans who are the most Christian Westerners like left. Right. Want a nice little bow on this. They want a two state solution. They want a viable Palestinian state. They want peace in the Middle East. All that stuff. I think Israelis you talk to now, most of them, at least. Don't believe that a two-state solution is viable. There will never be peace. There will be war forever. And I, I think that's much more of the Jewish narrative. Um, I, I think actually in our group, uh, Dan, I think I assailed the group with, again, my, my random Israeli history points. The famous uh, speech that Moshe Dayan gave at the, the funeral oration, which is like the Gettysburg Address in Israel, as, as I understand it, everyone learns it. 
um, at the death of, I forget his name, Roy Rotberg or something, who was just, you know, a, a guy who was a guard in a, in a kibbutz close to Gaza, and then he was ambushed and, and murdered, as, as many Israelis have been. And there's a famous line there, he says, this is our future forever, lest the sword fall from our hands and our nation fall, right? Like it was this very sort of grim, cynical acceptance that Israel would be at war forever. And that in fact, even assuming that we would let the sword fall from our hands would be an, an item of national danger. How much do you lend any credence to that theory that there's just different religious narratives in people's heads about what is possible in the Middle East today? And the Americans are running with one piece of software that says there's a happy ending coming. And the Israelis are running with a different piece of software that says, remember Amalek and let not the sword fall from our hands. I mean, I don't even think it's a theory. I, I buy it 100%. I, I don't think it's just that Americans believe in happy endings. Well, of course, Americans do believe in happy endings. So the primary, maybe the principal American belief from which all others flow is the supreme power of America to fix things, to solve things, to, um, to you know, a, a advance the world. And um, so the the... American attitude toward um, the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians is not just like it needs a happy ending. It's also we can fix this. And um, what this is missing, what this needs, the reason why it hasn't been fixed yet is Americans. Like we're the thing that will fix this. And that had been the, the you know, the approach taken by, I don't know, what is it, five successive uh, White Houses. The attitude in Israel, I, I think, is certainly resigned to the idea. Look, certainly like the, the Oslo roadmap to two states, nobody believes in that anymore. There are a couple of hangers on. Actually, if you find somebody in Israel who still talks to you about a sort of Oslo-style roadmap to two states, you know that they're on uh, Western payroll. Right. Like the only people who are still talking like that are people who get paid by, uh, well, you know, American NGO or European NGOs or something like that. You know, that's nobody actually believes that anymore, except the people whose livelihood depends on um, believing that or at least mouthing belief in it. Um, I don't know that I would say my Hebrew is also terrible, I should say, and I'm new to this country. And um, so I don't want to pretend to any expertise about the Israeli psyche or anything, but I am, I, I think that there are possibilities of real meaningful coexistence, sharing this land that will be uh, substantively improved by a reconciliation between Israel's ascendant, national, religious, and, and religious uh, political movements and its older secular movements. I actually think there's more hope, more possibility for peace of some kind um, with uh, the religious movements coming into more power in Israel. Um, but, you know, yeah, in general, it has simply taken a sort of backseat in the Israeli political imagination and an Israeli domestic political discourse, even though, you know, the, the rioting a few years ago, the violence a few years ago, the fact that Lud, which is very close to where I live, there were some violent uh, 
conflicts there. It shook people up. It hasn't had um, traction. It hasn't had staying power compared to the unbelievably personal, impassioned uh, sense of like our country is being taken away from us by these people. And it's not the Palestinians, it's religious Jews. It's, um, you know, uh, sort of the equivalent of deplorables in a way. Jacob, I wanted to ask one question to you because you mentioned it regarding kind of Obama's tack with Iran. My, 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 you know, very limited outside observer sense, just reading mainstream media, which is always dangerous, is it seems like that is the singular focus for the Israeli foreign policy is, yeah, put put the reconciliation with the the Sunni countries, the the relationship with Iran or how Iran is, you know, meddling in Lebanon, funding whatever, you know, kind of groups in Gaza or, or you know, the West Bank. I'm, I'm curious how the secular side and the the right, is, is there any alignment on Iran or is there actually, you know, I, I, how does that play out? Yeah, there's very little daylight between the two on that. Uh, look, it's, it's not surprising, right? Like if you're encircled by a hostile country that's pledged uh, to your destruction and is funding Hamas in Gaza, is funding Hezbollah in Lebanon, so to your south, to your north, it now effectively controls Syria as a satrapy. That's where everybody is going to be focused. So it's not, I don't think it speaks to anything more consequential about uh, deeper alignments between the left and the right. It's just like you would have to be, um, you'd have to be very crazy or very original and, um, bold in your sense of the world to see things. And I happen to know somebody who does see things a bit differently. So I'm, you know, I've gone to visit, uh, I was about to say famous military historian. He might be famous named Martin Van Creveld, who wrote a book called the transformation of war. And he's, uh, developed a theory of post-class Witsian warfare He's very brilliant, uh, prescient in many ways, military historian. And, you know, he has been somebody who has been sort of critical of the focus on Iran um, and and has uh, said that the threat has been uh, overinflated. And, and but he's an, a real outlier in this regard, though. I, hope, I have a lot of respect for him. I think he's um, quite brilliant. I also think he's wrong about this. But um, for the most part, that's how everybody sees it. The real difference is. And this comes back to the way in which like everything becomes domestic politics um, within the American arena. The real difference is the people on, let's say, the center left and even some on the center right view the closeness with Washington as the most important security barrier that Israel has vis-a-vis Iran. Bibi and his block and Likud, while by no means trying to break the alliance with America, it's absolutely not what Bibi wants to do. And he's, you know, he's, but he's cultivated a different kind of alliance where he's made, uh, you know, it's a much more explicitly sort of partisan alliance that Bibi has, uh, some of which is a consequence of 
the enmity coming from the Obama administration towards him, some of which, you know, it's mutual. But the BB side sees their, their preservation of sort of key strategic independence, autonomy, freedom of maneuver as more important than closeness with DC. Now, these are sort of matters of degree on both sides because the center left people would insist in public at least that they maintain independence and BB would insist in public at least that he maintains the, you know, the, the sort of vitality, how vital the, the alliance is. But it's a, it's a meaningful distinction between the two sides there. And so you get the BB version with the spy novel level assassinations happening of Israel or uh, Iranian, uh, you know, nuclear scientists, right? It's like the, the robotic machine gun, the motorcycles and all that kind of stuff. You get that. I, I got to say, have you guys seen this, the semaphore piece on Robert Malley? It's by Jay Solomon. It's in semaphore. And the, the quick recap is that Robert Malley, who's a holdover from the Obama administration, who until recently was serving at very high levels in the Biden administration, then he got sort of suspended mysteriously five months ago. Mali is the guy who's the architect of the nuclear deal with Iran under Obama. He ran an organization called CSIS, uh, Center for Strategic something or another. Um, and, you know, he was seen as, as not only pro-Iran, he's the son of a very sort of like Nasserite communist fathers, you know, Jewish communist, like pan-Arabist, um, virulently anti-Israel, virulently anti-Zionist. Um, but, you know, he's his own man. And uh, so he's the chief architect and the chief negotiator with Iran under the Obama administration. He gets brought in essentially in the exact same role in the Biden administration. So semaphore just reported like two days ago, a trove of emails, uh, uh, which came from an Iranian government official. So these are emails from, uh, Tehran, from the government that have been authenticated showing that, uh, three people who worked with Mali directly, one of whom now serves in a senior position in the Pentagon, were working for a Iranian cutout organization that was uh, conceived of by the Iranian foreign minister Zarif to act as a clearinghouse for pro-Tehran talking points within the Western media establishment. So in other words, they, you know, Zarif said, like, we need to find people to retail our position on these various things. They identified a number of academics who were like, you know, they thought would be susceptible to this approach. They thought were aligned enough that they would be good candidates. They brought them in. And these emails now show that like one of these guys, Ali Fayez, like writes a letter to uh, an Iranian government official saying, uh, I understand that it's my patriotic duty to help you, um, like advance these talking points, essentially, uh, you know, another, he sends a draft, like the full complete draft of an article that he's going to publish. There's another academic who volunteers to write articles for 
Iranian administration officials. Anyway, the point is like three of these people work directly for Mali. Uh, one of them continues to be employed at a very high level um, at the Pentagon and the uh, I forget if it was a, a White House Spox or the Pentagon Spox report was like, we're not worried about this. That happened. It happened in 2014. Now, the pe and the people in the media, of course, who, who lost lost their minds over the nonsense in the Steele dossier are all uh, poo-pooing this and saying it's not a big deal. You know, it's basically racist to even talk about it. And it's a smear and it's pro-Israel Hasbara and um, whatever else. And like it's and it's Zionist settler colonialism to even mention the fact that three people working for Robert Malley were also essentially operating through a cutout of the government of Iran. Like, so I don't know what better illustration there could be of Antonio's point about the ways in which, um, you know, the, the domestic politics has just totally subsumed everything else. If you had any real sense of statecraft of there being an America that had, you know, if not enemies, competitors in the world, you know, if, if that you were trying to exercise leadership, like you probably wouldn't want the top levels of government to be penetrated by um, foreign agents like that. But it seems like it's, you know, I don't know. I have to trust the, the wisdom of the people I say, I see saying that it's not a big deal. Apparently it's not a big deal. So, yeah, I mean, that's a screaming red flag, but I mean, to, to get to Dan's earlier point, I mean, one of the things I noticed I mean, at the head of, for example, the the protest that walked from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, there's somebody who I have a photo of it didn't appear in the story. There's a photo of somebody saying Biden come save us. Right. The, the interesting thing is that in the, in the Israeli left, the relationship with the United States is still a big deal with the diaspora. I mean, they're all living like Clinton's still in power or something. And then the right. And I want to talk about that in a second, because I think what's going on in the Israeli right is novel and interesting and something most Americans don't understand. And the American right, they don't give a shit about the, the United States at all. Right. Like what what what, you know, I'm not going to name names, but, you know, what what the rabbi says as the sermon in the Park Avenue synagogue right on the Upper East Side matters to a certain class of Israeli, that voice or the, the Peter Beaner to the world, to the Ben Gavirs and the and the Smotriches of the world. They don't even know where the fuck the Park Avenue synagogue is. And by the way, that's a fake form of Judaism. Why do we care about them? Right. <laughs> and it's just it's this. I think part of the problem, and it's funny, Dan uses this phrase a lot, is that the U.S. has like main character syndrome because it has been the main character. It certainly wasn't World War II. It certainly wasn't the Cold War. But in certain parts of the world, it actually isn't a main character anymore and has shockingly little influence to actually change matters on the ground, other than the influence that is conceded to them by the players there. You, you sound like Balaji, Antonio. Uh, well, it, well, it's true. I mean, sorry, I, you know, at the end of the day, Israel, Israel is the United States' bulldog, if anything, in, in the Middle East. Do you think, you think Americans are capable of going and machine gunning the head of the you know, Iranian nuclear program and then shuttling people. They, they're not even the CIA hasn't done that in 50 years. Right. Like at the end of the day, they're, they're not capable of doing anything other than applying outside pressure and, and media on it. Right. Well, dog, and, uh, you know, and, and laboratory of innovation. Right. Like the U.S. sees Israel as a basically free high tech innovation. Right. I mean, to your point, you wrote a piece saying that the, that 
in fact, the U.S. should end the Israeli subsidy. Everyone says the Israeli subsidy. It's bullshit. It's not, an Israel, it's not a subsidy to Israel. Israel doesn't need the money anymore. It's not poor anymore. It's a subsidy to Lockheed Martin. And two, the technology they get back is way more than the money they put into it. Because Israel is the only country that is the only Western country, friendly United States, that's actually fighting real wars against non-trivial enemies and not firing guided missiles at some sheep herder in, in an Afghan mountain or something. Like, the, the, Israel is this amazing military laboratory that the U.S. absolutely profits from in a huge way. And anyhow, sorry to hit on another thing because it's going to distract us from the question I did want to ask you, Jake, because I know we're getting to the end of, of the podcast. But one thing I find interesting about my time that, that I was in Israel, you, you mentioned how before we got on the whole Iranian tangent, how, um, you know, the, the religious right is kind of this punching bag for the left or it's really the antagonist they look at. One thing I noticed is that the Haredi, which for those who don't know, it's like the guys with the black hats and the black coats, to like the people that you see in like Brooklyn that you associate with quote unquote, ultra orthodox, which is not a name I agree with, but whatever, the ultra orthodox, right, are the Haredi and that they're always kind of like the boogeyman, at least in the secular left's Israeli mindset, right, the Haredi. But I think one thing you've seen recently developed, that I think is actually the most interesting thing in Israeli politics. I mean, Micah Goodman has written an entire book about this, right, is the rise of religious Zionism, right? And again, for those who aren't super familiar with what that means, because it sounds like, wait, the religious or Zionist, isn't it the same thing? Like, no, it's actually totally oxymoronic, right? If you know, just very quickly, if you know about the history of Israel, Israel was founded by secular socialists who were not observant at all. Try, try and find a picture of Ben-Gurion with a keep on his head, you won't find one, right? And in fact, the Haredi, who had suffered tremendously under the Holocaust, were seen as like the repositories of true Orthodox Judaism because there weren't that many other Orthodox Jews around. And so there were conceded all these benefits that you have to the present day that control marriage in Israel and a bunch of other things. But what you find that's interesting is you're finding people who don't live the isolated lives of the Haredi, right? The Haredi, by the way, do not believe in the state that they consider to be too secular, which is why they don't serve in the army. It's like, no, you've got people who are observant and as orthodox as anything, but their children serve in the army, they pay taxes, they have real jobs, and there's a lot of them. There's like something like 20 to 25, more than there are Haredi. And yet you talk to the secular, and it's always about the Haredi who are avoiding taxes and avoiding the army, which is a legitimate grievance, to be clear. Like, I agree. It's a little bit of a, like, what the hell sort of thing. But what they refuse to address, because I think because they can't address it, right, is like, what do you do with, again, religious Zionists, modern Orthodox, Mizrahi, who are not secular, and, and they're not, they don't want part of the Tel Aviv spirit, right? But you can't actually point to them and say, well, you don't pay taxes and you don't serve. They do pay taxes, and they do serve. They just are not falling for the inducements of secular liberal society as you have. And I, I think against that, they just don't know what to say. And so they don't tend to address it, even though, again, I think it's much more important right now than like what's going on with Haredi. What, what do you make of that? Or what, what's your what's your thought on that? So to just heighten a few of those distinctions, uh, there are a few minor exceptions, uh, but for the most part, the Haredim don't only not serve in the army, some of them explicitly don't accept the legitimacy of the state um, based on the idea that uh, it's, it wasn't supposed to be, um, you know, man was not supposed to bring the Jews uh, back from the exile to Israel, that that was supposed to be the Messiah. So there are not insignificant number of Haredi in Israel who um, – have made their peace with living in the state, but still um, some of them are, you know, there's a, a tiny minority that's like explicitly virulently anti-state and they get off, you know, they're the ones who there's 50 documentaries about them. Then the Tariq Karta people love to hold them up because they're, 
you know, explicitly anti-Zionist, but they're like a, a marginal group. There's a much larger group who just um, don't view the state as a full rightful authority, even if they've made their peace with it. The religious Zionists are not only are they more politically significant, they're becoming more politically significant every year as they have been doing since 1967. So after Israel's victory in the six day war, that sort of uh, reconquer of the you know, West Bank, Judea and Samaria, there's been a enormous growth in, um, in not only demographic growth, but also um, an important sort of a, march through the institutions has a bad connotation, but uh, spread of influence of religious Zionists through different institutions uh, in the army, in political life and civic life. Um, and, you know, you said at the beginning that like uh, Smoltrich and Ben Gavir don't care what the Park Avenue rabbi says. And that's true, but, you know, they're legitimately extreme and in some ways noxious, uh, characters, outliers, much more moderate religious Zionists also don't care. And they don't care because they're contemptuous of what the Park Avenue rabbi says. They really don't care. It doesn't occur to them to care. Um, and, um, you know, I, I have found somewhat to my surprise that many of them are sort of taken aback when they are appraised of the degree of estrangement from Israel from like, you know, sort of Jewish establishment types, you know, because it doesn't it doesn't occur to them to seek approval. So they haven't even caught up to the fact that there's this much approbation um, to your basic point about, you know, the the secular uh, Zionist left's inability to deal with that. This is for me, it's something inside my own family that I deal with, um, you know, my, my relations in Israel are very much on the secular, uh, you know, secular going back like to the founding of the state and before it um, side of things. And they are really, um, wonderful people who I love, but they have a view of their right to rule Israel um, that has not accommodated their loss of power and significance. And I would say that the way they deal with the religious Zionists is first, just by lumping them in with the Haredim, and secondly, by blaming them for uh, sort of demonizing them in the same way that the American left might for um, persecuting the Palestinians and for preventing, you know, the achievement of the two-state solution. So they might say to you, yes, it's true, Oslo couldn't work and Arafat, you know, betrayed the promise of Oslo. And they might say all that, but they'll also say to you, and the religious settlers made it impossible and they persecute um, the Palestinians, not without some justification um, for that. But, you know, the the accommodation that has to be reached, and I should also add one more point, and recognizing that their ideology is more abundant, right? Like if you talk to these people who are marching in the streets are marching for themselves as a people and for their place in Israel, but they have no 
movement other than opposition to losing ground, other than opposition to Bibi. There's not an ideology that animates them. It's like, you know, neoliberal centrist stuff, boilerplate stuff. Hence, you get a Biden save us sign, right? Like no self-respecting movement with any sense of itself waves around a Biden save us sign. But if you talk to the, the people who recognize this and who know that the old left-wing secular Zionist movement is moribund, what they'll say to you is, we have tech. We're the startup nation. And this is where I, I feel that the there is a, a, a urgent need to reconcile um, high tech in Israel to the country's true purpose, to its national ethos, and to not allow it to become a superstructure, um, a political superstructure, a surveillance superstructure. And that's a bit cryptic, but, uh, but I think it's important. Which is funny. It's like the most neoliberal thing to say, right? In some sense to say, well, but we're, we're the economy, so kind of screw you, right? And the, and the reality is that that place isn't a very sharp relief, the, the decision, I think. I mean, we're, we're, we're painting with very broad brushstrokes here, but I, I think many in the religious right in Israel would prefer to be more religious and less perhaps spectacularly economically successful, right? While the left, of course, well, what, what do you mean? We're just going to take our little startup toys away and that's the end of it. But, but you're right that, they, that the left doesn't, like I was, I was at the end of the march from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, they set up a stage in front of the Knesset, like the leaders, uh, what's his name, Rodman, I, I've already forgotten their name, whatever, the three or four leaders who have sprung up in the WhatsApp groups as leaders gave speeches and it was completely empty and vapid. I mean, they sang Hatikva, like the Israeli national anthem or whatever, like there's some social fabric there, but there, there's no, there's no message. There's no platform, right? It's just, it's just no <laughs> to the, just we're, we're pro-democracy, even though we're subverting a democratic result and that's it. And then, you know, this is what it is. There's, there's not much of a there there. And, um, but, but that's why it's so interesting because it really is kind of, I know it sounds cliche, but a fight over the soul of the nation. I mean, I think Liel and Tablet made the illusion that is like, is it a Jewish state or a state for Jews? And that, that is the debate. And you present it that way to the leftists and they're like, no, 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 no. It's not that. It's about democracy. Listen, did you see the article in Haaretz last week? It is really Haaretz. So the, the editor-in-chief of the Israeli edition of Haaretz, Aleph Ben, uh, wrote an article. It's time to get rid of Jewish, take Jewish out of the Jewish state. This is the ed editor-in-chief of the premier, um, you know, premier left-wing, center-left, Mapai, Avodah, like continuity Israeli left publication, said it's time to fully divorce. And, you know, he's still ahead of like where my cousins in Beersheba are, but he's, that's planting the flag. That's where it's going. That's, Liel was exactly right in that piece. Yeah, no, I mean, it's funny. I, I, I caught a decent amount of flag from my piece. Oh, you're just an outsider. You don't understand it. And like every Haaretz headline I've seen since then is only confirmed, frankly. So I'm, I, I didn't find the piece you're referring to, but like Google randomly linked me to a different piece, which is even more shocking. That's called, it's time for us Jews to go back into exile. It's like, man. Ah, yes, yes. <laughs> Now that's somebody who's trying to win supporters and, and build broad coalitions, right? That's that's not like a weird, narrow, fetishistic appeal. 
it's funny we've gone so far i don't know if you if you saw the movie um uh maybe we can end the podcast with a movie plug the, the movie uh golda the biopic with helen mirren about, i did not you know it's funny at the time i didn't think it was so amazing it's kind of grown on me i have to say it's one of these films that goes better with age as it sort of curdles in your mind and you, and you remember scenes anyhow it, it in there i think somewhere it, it quotes or alludes to the famous golda Meir quote that if the choice is between um you know being dead and pitied or alive and considered problematic then I, we're, we're, we're going to go for the latter, right? And that was obviously the, the philosophy that led Israel through all of this existential crisis. And I, I think that the movie, by the way, is pretty good because it's a little weird, again, but it, it, it really is a picture of a woman who, despite being assailed by doubt and, and, and ill health, sort of provided the, the steel spine when the country was sort of shell-shocked in its most existential, in its moment of most existential peril, right? So it's an interesting look at what that must be being inside that, um, but, um, in any case, we've gone from that world of, well, we're just, we'd rather be alive and disliked to one where, no, 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 we're going to voluntarily go back into exile because yeah, forget this whole Jewish state business. It's just too complicated and weird. And, you know, our friends in America don't like it. So screw that. <laughs> but, you know, I think, um, I think like that you can, you can turn, um, that sort of indifference to world opinion, which is a healthy instinct insofar as it goes, into a um, an excuse for um, you know an, an excuse for for not dealing with the contradictions and problems of your own society, and some of that happened in Israel and needed to be addressed also. So you know, without adopting the um, like, let's throw ourselves at the at the mercy of um, enlightened world opinion, the um, the sort of purely like real politic Israeli approach toward not only the region, but its own place in the world and in the region as well. Like, Israel needs needed a spiritual crisis. It needs this conflict. There needs to be an accommodation reached. You know, there needs to be an accommodation reached between religious Israelis and secular Israelis, both should feel that it's fully their country. I mean, I am, you know, more sympathetic to the uh, sort of religious side of this and political terms, but it's a, it's a country for both uh, groups. And there also needs to be an accommodation with um, Palestinians. And, um, you know, that can go on the back burner. It can be less important than, Iran in strategic terms, but it doesn't just go away. Um, so this is a, it's a difficult moment, but a necessary one. I, I hope it leads to a kind of breakthrough. Yeah. I mean, if you want to take a sort of cautionary uh, tale, right, if you look at history, um, the length, the, the longevity of independent Jewish statehood has been remarkably short lived throughout 3000 years. And typically the downfall has been external pressure but actually really infighting amongst Jews. If you read, um, you know, Josephus's The Jewish War about the infighting that happened during the siege of Jerusalem and how the Romans ultimately triumphed because the Jews turned on each other. It's a very cautionary tale about what you see today when Israel is being, uh, being threatened by its long-term enemy, the Persians, and not the, not the Romans. It's one question I would ask all the secular lefties in Israel because it's like they have all these objections and all this and protests. It's like, all right, dude, like this is your little, this is your little Supreme Court drama now. Fast forward 30 years from now, right? Israel's getting more right wing. It's, it's, it's getting more religious. Where, where would you see, you know, 
the the settler population in in the West Bank or Judea, Samaria, however you prefer to refer to it, is only increasing, right? Where do you see Israel in say 30, 40 years? Like not like warning extreme case, like most likely outcome, the mode of the distribution. Where, where do you see it in 30 or 40 years? Um, I don't know. I, I find that too hard to answer. I mean, the truth is I just extrapolate out from the present and I think like uh, some some version of sort of um, stalemate not so far off from the one we have now seems possible to me. A more hopeful outcome would involve, uh, you know, a sort of a real accommodation reached between secular and religious Israelis where the country becomes more religiously Jewish in its character without alienating secular people or imposing on them, which I think people assume that that's a contradiction in terms, but I think it's actually possible. Um, and so I, th I think that there could be a country that, uh, you know, is Israel could be the model post-secular society um, in that way. And at the same time, there could be uh, some kind of um, real reconciliation with Palestinians who I think are, um, you know, are also like, you know, you say that Israelis are exhausted with two states. I think Palestinians are, are exhausted too. And, you know, Hamas and violent resistance captures that energy because, first of all, you know, the PA, the Palestinian Authority is so captured and inept and corrupt. And um, also because there's so little alternative, but there are scenarios where, you know, there's some kind of federalized system or um, something that uh, that allows people who want to live in the land of Israel to live in the land of Israel um, without having to be permanently at war with each other. You know, as long as we're projecting out it, um, I don't, I wouldn't call that likely. Like I, I, that's not where I would place money. It's not where I think the betting odds are necessarily. The betting odds are something like the present, but a bit worse. Very Jewish that it's possible. Yeah, you know, but it is possible, and I and I think ultimately more likely under a more religious uh, political leadership in Israel than under the current framework. Okay, I you know I, I think my projection to the extent I can project um, is probably very similar to yours. I'm slightly more optimistic. I think it's I, I do think a reconciliation is possible. One of the points of my piece is that. Secular Israelis are not nearly as secular as they think they are. They're more observant than your average American Jew. <laughs> they all do Shabbat. They're very, they're very Jewy for being in tech in Tel Aviv. They're way more Jewy than your average American Jew. And I don't think there's actually such a wide gulf, actually, between secular Jews and, and more observant Jews in Israel. I think there will be a reconciliation. I think the country will get more religious and more right wing. I think the secular left, some of them will leave. Some of them, it's going to be the proverbial moving to Canada if Trump won. They're not going to move. I think some of those who do move are going to have the shock of their lives because you, like the diaspora me mentality is real, right? To the extent that I've spent a few years as a, I just got to this party, but it's very different. The Jew in America acts and reacts and lives very differently than the Jew in Israel, right? To cite a weird analogy to Americans if they don't get it, 
a Jew in Israel is like a Cuban in Miami, right? They walk around. They're not even conscious of the fact that they own the place. The entire culture is theirs. They don't even realize that there's another like diaspora Cuban who lives in the United States and struggles about his Latinx identity. He's like, who the fuck is that? Who the fuck cares? As he sits there and sips his little cafe con leche and just doesn't even think about it, right? It's very different to be a Cuban living in Spokane, Washington or whatever in Pennsylvania. You've got all these crises. You had, you got a lot, like, it's this whole other thing, right? And I think your average Israeli Jew doesn't realize that. Never mind wearing a keep on Europe and getting harassed and shit, like all that crap, they're not going to deal with, right? As much as they want to go back and live in this, in this, you know, whatever the secular world. So I think a lot of that, like we're leaving is not actually not going to happen. Um, I think the West Bank situation is going to get more along the same trend line as it is now. I mean, I was, I drove through the West Bank in 2005 and I mean, to be blunt, it's weird that we talk about the two, two state solution. It was already functionally annexed at the time. All the highways were controlled by the, the army. I mean, there's certain cities that you couldn't go to, but by and large, it, it was shocking to me how much the West Bank felt like, oh, this is just an extension of Israel, obviously. And this is almost 20 years ago. Now it's only gone to be, now that the settler number is, what, I don't know what the multiple is, but it's a much larger number than it used to be. And that number is only set to increase. If, if not even for religious reasons, just for real estate reasons, Tel Aviv is super expensive. It's more expensive than San Francisco when it comes to real estate, which is crazy, right? Because the, the salaries just don't justify those, those costs if you don't work in tech. And so more and more people are going to be pushed into the into the West Bank. And I don't know, I think 30 years from now, you're just gonna have a slightly more religious country. The Jews will still be fighting. The Palestinians will be there. Israel will look more and more like from the river to the sea. And then that'll be that. That's probably the, the and then of course, there's gonna be some external enemy like Iran or somebody else, because there always is, because it's Israel. And then life will just muddle on and there won't be a happy ending. It'll be like the end of the Hebrew Bible, but maybe I'm being optimistic. <laughs> yeah, the only thing I would add to that, given the the podcast I'm on right now is that um, I think Israel has to be very wise and deliberate in how it handles its tech economy and in how it leverages strategic tech. And um, I say this as somebody who, you know, views the net effect of the concentration of um let's say digital technologies, uh, political and economic power in the US as a uh, force that has, leave aside whether it's like a net negative or a net positive, it, it has not been well managed by the American political class. It has been very, very poorly managed by the American political class in a way that has uh, increased political polarization and social breakdown. And, um, but America is a vast country with considerable resources and natural defenses and hundreds of millions of people. And we can just make mistakes and absorb them. And Israel doesn't have that luxury. So um, you know, that's my, my word of caution. Cool. With that, Eric, should we close? Yeah. Let's wrap on that. Jacob, uh, this has been a fascinating uh, interview. Thank you so much for, for coming on. Thanks for having me. Hey, everyone. Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. 
We're launching new shows every week and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at ericaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co and let's partner together.